Welcome to the SCBWI Podcast Conversations, a series of long-form interviews where we talk to some of the most influential and interesting people working in children's books. My name's Theo Baker, and on today's show, I talk to the fascinating author and illustrator and noted swagmaster, Susie Garamani. She's the creator of adorable picture books like Stack the Cats and its companion, Balance the Birds, and a host of other books that spotlight nature and our connection to the natural world such as her adaptations of John Muir's words into books like Little Muir's Song and Little Muir's Night, and her collaborations with Jennifer Ward for Will It Hatch, Will It Grow, and I Love Dirt, among others. Susie started her career with her wildly successful Etsy store, and I'm a huge fan of her notebooks and journals. Along with our talk about her illustrations and books, we also got deep into how she approaches things like paper, printing processes, and how to live and work as an artist who always follows her curiosities and obsessions. Please enjoy. I was wondering if you could just, just to give us a baseline about who you are and where you come from, if you could just tell us a little bit about where you come from and however you want to answer that. Is that okay? All right. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Susie Garamani. I live in San Diego, California. Um, I am an author illustrator, but I also am a painter, designer, ceramicist. <laughs> I do a bunch of different things. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm not quite sure where to go from that. I, I find introducing myself always to be a little bit um, awkward to do. Okay, fair enough. Uh, wh- where were you born? I was born in Chicago, Illinois. Um, I'm a first generation American. My parents are both from Iran. And uh, I lived in Illinois, then Rhode Island, a few other places, ultimately California. So it kind of circled the country a bit. (laughs) So I know you you wound up uh, going to RISD for, you know, fine arts, but could you tell us a little bit about your experience with art as a child or any books or anything I'd love to kind of find the the mystical connection if there was, you know, the what sets you off. So uh, growing up, my parents both worked full time. They they worked a lot, and my sister and I um, would spend just entire afternoons in our public library. Just we lived there. I remember reaching the point of the maximum books that you could check out, and I felt such shame and overwhelm that I was told that I had to put some of the books back. I think the limit was like 30. Um, So, I I mean, we are a family of readers. Everyone in my family has some um, book obsession (laughs) to their their lives. So I was really raised around books and raised to love libraries. Uh, My elementary school also was this really interesting historic school. Um, It it had a WPA mural in the lobby, Works Project um, Administration from like the 20s. That was really amazing. It was just a great, I I loved school, loved libraries. And our library in our school bared a shocking resemblance to the the library slash reading area and the never ending story. So I really pictured myself as this like, I felt the sanctuary there. I loved being there. I, I, I love just being with a book in a protected space uh, like that. So it's really been my whole life that I've been immersed with books and art um, all around me and finding 
I guess finding my identity within those things rather than in things like um, objects or toys or uh, activities like, you know, sports or something like that. It, it's it's really been my whole life that I've been like a book and art person. So, uh, yeah, that's that was kind of the case growing up, just massive amounts of unsupervised time <laughs> in libraries, uh, just hours and hours. I remember sneaking into the adult section of the not not like uh, scandalous adult, but like, you know, the, the <laughs> hardcover made for grownups section of the library that kids really weren't supposed to be in and, and discovering really memorizing the different sections that I liked of it. So in our public yeah. library two different libraries that I was obsessed with, but I'm really obsessed with all of them. Yeah. Well, there, I, I love the, I love the kind of image of the wandering child kind of, you kind of get a glimpse of like the wider world of books, but the, the grown up books. Um, I'm envious of people who can draw because, you know, as a kid, there's like the good drawer in the group, you know, the, in the class are like, Oh, this guy can really draw. Were you that person uh, growing up? I mean, my mom is really creative. So she used to give us art lessons when we were kids. I have always loved drawing. I have always been able to spend infinite amounts of time drawing and painting both. Uh, I was a really quiet kid and I found expressing myself through creativity a lot easier sometimes than um, socializing or than being in any way a center of attention. I think it's pretty common for shy kids. So yeah, I think I have always been someone who loved drawing. I haven't always been someone who was good at drawing though. Um, I think I think teachers would kind of praise that kind of thing, but it was more the attention I would give to it than any actual skill I was bringing to it, I think. And um, I really loved using it to connect with other people as I became more conscious of that being a capability so or a possibility. I used to make my own t-shirts and draw on them or paint on them a lot when I was a kid. And I started when I was 12, I think I started running my own zine, which I ran for years and um, got like a PO box and stuff for, for that with money I made from selling friendship bracelets. Like it's always really, it's always been something that I made work in my life. What was the zine about? It was mostly about music. I, I'm really into music. So, I mean, it's it's em thoroughly embarrassing now. But uh, at the time, it was just a way to be part of the subculture that was already happening, I think. And um, I wasn't super serious about it, but it was something that I really enjoyed doing and enjoyed distributing and felt like it was sort of like a way to introduce myself to the world. One thing that I'm always fascinated about with people who talk about, you know, doing things kind of really intensely as kids. I, I know for like a lot of writers or something, they might rewrite like someone coming into a room like 20 times, like as a child, because there's all these sort of like building blocks that later come back. Like, how do I get someone into a room? How do I show a scene where people are eating? And you're talking about this kind of infinite time that you were comfortable spending like drawing and painting. Were you kind of, what what was it that you were working at in those kind of early years? Were you trying to like work things out, like technically even? I think that's such an interesting question because 
so many people have different processes that show up early on. Like when you're talking about an author or a writer when they're very young, trying to rewrite a scene or explore the different ways of doing something. I was definitely not that controlled about my process. I wasn't trying to like um, figure out a really specific way of doing things. I think I liked just challenging myself in general. So I try and use one art supply in a lot of different ways, but it wasn't so much conscious. It was almost just like an experimental attitude, I think. Um, and I think it, it's almost hard for me to remember exactly what I was doing, except I think I just was enjoying the process so much. So um, I just, I sort of remember the like calm feeling that would wash over me when I'd be doing certain aspects of it. And I still feel that uh, all the time when I'm working. You do, you can get to that pretty quickly. You're not like, oh God, there's this thing I have to do now. It's, it feels good. Both sides of that are definitely present. <laughs> I, I definitely have days where the reluctance to begin is present, very present. But I usually do get to that point where my, you know, internal monologue kind of shuts off and I really just enjoy the, the flow of things. Yeah, I would say it happens almost every time that I draw or paint when I let myself, you know, when I when I let myself really get into it and let myself not stay super aware of the time or even just just trust myself that I'll get to where I need to go with my artwork eventually, you know, with the painting I'm working on or the illustration I'm working on, that it'll get there. I just kind of take it one step at a time and it really, it, it really can become quite zen. Mm -hmm. uh, it feels a little hokey to say, but it's it's among my most peaceful times. I've heard that described as in a lot of ways, and I don't think any of them are hokey, like God level consciousness or whatever it is like where you're and I'm curious to hear about you know some people to get into that state where they're just working creatively and they're the critics off and all that some people take some they have to work up to it all day like five hours or like in the morning some people put on a special kind of music or light an incense or whatever it is I was wondering about like what you do and what you need to do to get to that creative zone where you can just tune out the world and that's all okay. Yeah, I, I think it's been so different during these last couple of years of the pandemic because in the years prior, I might have gone to a dedicated space to paint and that in itself would really change my mindset. But I, I'm at home all the time pretty much still and uh, taking a lot of precautions around the pandemic. So my answer for that now is drastically different than it might have been a few years ago. Right now, the things that I need to do are, I mean, honestly, I am at my best when I start working before I'm fully awake. I think that that gives me space to begin working creatively before all my worries, concerns, and stresses kind of come into my day. I'm not great at doing this uh, regularly, but I want to be. And, and I've had times where um, I have been really great about doing this. I have a digital co-working group that starts on the East Coast. So it's run out of New York City, it's called Cave Day. And I'll sign in usually to like a 6.30 a.m. session. So it's pretty early here to be starting there. But it's almost like I made this commitment. I show up, I get started, and almost immediately I'm feeling the that, that calm. It's almost like a 
energized way of working because I'm not, I'm not concerned about what I'm working toward. I'm just working. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not concerned about what's going to be what I'm trying to make in the end. It's more like what I'm making in that moment, if that makes sense. So that's kind of my technique right now is begin working before I can protest <laughs> before I'm awake enough to, to, Uh, talk myself out of it. And um, I have some other tricks too. I think people who do something like light incense or put on certain music, um, it's all to add something pleasurable and routine to the experience. I think it sort of softens the edge of telling yourself you're getting to work. So I understand all of that. Sometimes I'll listen to an audio book or something. It really helps me slip into um, just working also just to have that extra layer of something enjoyable. I love what you're saying about starting before you're fully awake. I've always been envious of people who can do that because like if I start to work before I'm fully awake, I'm like, oh God, I'm not at full capacity yet. Therefore, like whatever I do will be cruddy, right? There's that sensor that kicks in. like, I can't work unless everything's perfect. And you're able to just sort of say, okay, let me just, this is my day. I'm going to just, wake up to it. I should say too, that this is, I'm not a morning person and I did not work like this a few years ago. I was the exact opposite. I'd work through the night, often pulling all nighters or, um, just beginning late at night and working through the hours where it's sort of like, there's no real sense of time, only a sense of your own tiredness. So, um, and you know, I, I don't have children to care for in the morning or something. So I had that flexibility, but, um, I developed working early as a uh, an antidote kind of to just the fatigue I was feeling from the news, from the environment we're in. So it sort of gives me space before I really have to attend to like what our traumas of the day really are going to be, knowing that they're coming. So in the morning, it's almost like this uh, extreme simplicity and blank slate to my day, you know, the sense of there's going to be time later to deal with the worries. So really my, the mentality that I have when I'm waking up is just that I've made this commitment to begin at this specific time. I try to just stay really simple about my thinking at that, that point and um, know that I'll get to other things eventually later. And they start to creep in to my mind as, you know, later in the day. But I would say I have at least three you know, un, untainted hours, <laughs> at least, um, before that really starts happening. And then it slowly tapers off after that, where I get a little bit less focused as I become more alert. And, you know, as my husband's awake, or phones start ringing, or whatever, as the interruptions start coming up. But um, my mentality, and my, my mindset in the morning is really just that it's very simple. I, I have a commitment to start at a certain time. And I'm just going to do this one thing, um, start in this one simple place. And that seems to be the successful formula for me right now in terms of, you know, best tapping into my own creativity and my own productivity. Um, I really am not able to pull those late nights these days. Well, there's two parts to that because it's like, I, there's kind of a self-care to that. You're like, we wake up in the morning, you look at the New York times or something boom, like knife to the, the chest every morning, yeah. right? You're, you're like, you're, I'm going to spare myself this intense pain right away and just try to like, 
And also the intense pain of, of being a vampire, working all night and getting off of uh, normal people time is, can be, I used to work all nights too. And then like, you know, it, you just, all of a sudden, you're not a, a person, a real person anymore. You're just like a night creature. I love being feral. I love being a night creature. I, I really, um, I worked that way for decades and I would love to get back to it, honestly, but I just kind of find that I, I have brain fog now in the afternoons and it persists through the evening. It's, um, I think it's, it's something a lot of us are dealing with during this time. So I've just had to make some adjustments because I'm just not really feeling exactly like myself in the ways that I may have before. So I think it is a real self-care thing because if I can't, if I can't work in the evening and the daytimes are kind of compromised by the stresses and the interruptions and things like that, that come up with life, then where am I being true to myself? And, mm. and, you know, I'm kind of working with who I am right now and hopeful that, you know, someday I'll have more flexibility to choose when I want to work. But, um, right now it really seems like my most, my easiest time to get mm. creative is really just capturing that, that morning momentum. Well, thank you for letting us in there. I didn't mean to poke around too much. I, I was just really fascinated by the process you've sort of improvised for yourself and the times. And I was wondering, um, okay, so you go to RISD for, um, was it like illustration? Tell me about like what you went into school hoping to do or get out of it. Just to, if I can close out the prior conversation yeah. on something, I, I, it wasn't a seamless transition to changing the way that I work. And it took talking to other people and really relating with other people to kind of get some advice on other things that I could try. And I think that's something we have to kind of do, you know, especially when you're full-time creative, working from home, working alone for decades, you know, for, for a long time, sometimes you need to reevaluate what's working um, or how you could be doing things differently. So I was really lucky that it's actually a friend of mine who runs a co-working space here in San Diego that I used to go to. Um, I, I was talking to her about how I missed co-working at the start of the pandemic, how losing that kind of impacted me and I was struggling to focus and she made the suggestion of joining this online co-working group which has just been such a fit for me um so I was very lucky to find a solution that really worked for me but I tried a lot of different things too so um and it really did take and continues to take talking to other people to kind of um understand uh first of all, that it's not an isolated experience that a lot of people are experiencing this uh, or experiencing needing to change the way that they work, but also that there are options available. It's really kind of helps you feel a little hopeful rather than feeling like, um, you know, that that something needs to drastically change outside of your control to be able to feel like yourself again. Mm. So um, I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. It does. And it, you know, you, there's never one system. You always think I'll find the system. Right. And like, that'll be it for, you know, the rest. And then you, you get the system. You're like, it's six months later. You're like, system's not working anymore. I got to change it up <laughs> all over again. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the scope of what we're working toward or what we're working on, the challenges of each project are so drastically different that it makes sense to, to revisit. So anyway, I, I didn't mean to. Um, not at all. No, no, no. I'm not avoiding your question. <laughs> we can zoom past it if you want. Just, no, oh, no. it was great. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, RISD was great though. I, I loved going there. I think I, I still tell myself it was um, one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. Um, I still feel really connected to it as a school. So I grew up in, I, I went to a public school in Chicago. It was huge. RISD is actually smaller than the high school I went to. Um, my high school didn't have, um, you know, it, it wasn't uh, art, the, any of the arts were elective there. Um, so to go to a school where <laughs> it was almost the opposite, like the liberal arts were kind of elective, uh, was really <laughs> a revelation. Um, it was sort of a, a bit of a game time decision that I made to even apply to art school. And when I went, it was with this almost similar attitude that I had to zine making. It was sort of like, I'm going to try this. This feels like a, a weird way to express myself. I don't know what's going to come of it, but I'm going to, I'm going to explore this. So, um, that sounds really callous. Uh, I, I guess maybe I'm not, <laughs> I may not be presenting this that well because it was a lot of work to go and I was very dedicated to art. Uh, it was a lot of work even just to apply, but I sort but of- But it didn't went, feel like so serious. You're like, this is this is just a great thing. I'm going to try. It was completely unknown to me. A lot yeah. of the students who go to RISD live on the East Coast. They're more familiar with it as an institution or they went to the summer program or something like that. To me, I had no idea what I was doing, to be honest. I had kind of been advised that it was a great school. I visited. I I really liked the weirdness of the campus. Um, and I just, uh, I, I just, you know, it was very intuitive for me to even apply or go there. It wasn't really like something that I um, always wanted, you know, I had, had always thought I would be doing. It was really when it came time to apply to colleges when I was in high school, at first I thought that I'd sort of explore creative writing. And at sort of the last minute when I was actually working on applications, I thought, I don't want to do this. So I just um, applied to art school instead. And I'm so happy that I went. Um, the first thing that I really discovered when I was there was that uh, I was in good company. I was in the company of a lot of creative people who are doing interesting things and really had my first sense of real community while at RISD. Um, mm -hmm. It was very healing in that way. And I, a lot of friends that I'm still friends with. Um, and, uh, when at RISD, you have to declare your major when you're a freshman. So about four months or so into your freshman year in college, I mean, you really have no idea who you're going to be in your, in the rest of your life, but you have to make a decision. Then I always admired people who chose something like furniture design. It's mm -hmm. like, what, what <laughs> background do you have in this? And you're making a decision to focus on that the rest of your life. It's so <laughs> amazing that I thought. I love drawing and painting. I wanted it to be um, useful in the world, like, um, you know, have a practical application. Um, not, not that, you know, purely fine arts are, are impractical, but um, I really wanted to find, I, I think I wanted it to be collaborative. I think I wanted my work to be collaborative going forward. So I declared illustration thinking, drawing, painting, has a lot of different applications. Let's see where this goes. And um, and then I proceeded to resist it for the rest of my time while I was <laughs> I pretty much just wanted to be in a band <laughs> that whole time. I was in a band, I toured a lot and um, took as many classes outside of my major as possible. I did animation and photography were kind of big focal points for me. I was the designer of the school paper. I really just avoided illustration then in a lot of ways <laughs> do you, are you have that oppositional personality where you 
oppose yourself for everything for everything you're like okay today I'm going to do this no 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 I'm going to be bad is that like <laughs> well no I, I think I I I don't know how contrarian I am generally, but I think in this context, uh, illustration, once I went into it, it was so, a lot of the classes were very steeped in tradition, the traditions of illustration, which I think is, you know, it's great to learn. And I had to, you know, there were a lot of requirements that that you really have to take. Um, I'm grateful for those experiences. I think I wouldn't have done any editorial illustration like for magazines or newspapers if I hadn't had that training. So I, I was grateful for that experience, but I also was like a punk. I also, you know, I wanted to make t-shirts and like, you know, play in my band. And um, that wasn't really, uh, that's not something you major in at, at art school. So <laughs> that's kind of just, um, I think my side projects sometimes became my focus or the other skills I could pick up and then bring back um, were part of my focus too. Like I, I feel I explored a lot uh, just out of my own curiosity about what was possible in the world rather than just taking in the curriculum. I hear, I feel you on all of this. Let's talk about, let's get into, you know, the, a lot of the stationery that you were doing and a lot of the journals that you're making, design elements you're incorporating, they find their way into your books mm. um, or, or not find your, their way, but they seem to be foundational in some ways. Could you tell me about Boy Girl Party and the stationery and how that kind of turned into books and yeah, illustrating yeah. children's books? I think that's really perceptive of you because it's very true that the work that I make independently in general uh, ends up coming into a lot of my professional work. And that that definitely is the case with the stationery that I make, which almost entirely has been something that I've created because I myself wanted it to exist. <laughs> so um, it, it all, <laughs> it feels weird to even rewind. Uh, the evolution of working on stationery and making my own pro products really came out of being in a band. I used to make my own stickers and buttons and things like that. And then I started making paper products uh, for those, the same website that I coded myself just to sell this stuff. I sort of realized that people wanted it, whether or not they liked my music. So I started just making more things. Um, I, my really early stationary products, I would print at home just on a, like an inkjet printer. It feels really unprofessional to say now, but that's kind of, it was very, or, or I'd use print Goko, which is like a desktop silk screening machine, um, or I'd silk screen it. And, uh, just a, it really came out of my own curiosity to create things that I wanted to use. I'm a huge letter writer, journaler, sketcher. So uh, I really like having tangible paper products that I enjoy using or that add some, some sort of, um, I don't know, sort of, sort of further express who I am in some way. So, uh, and, and that I feel proud to carry around. So, mm. I, and, and that's functional. Honestly, it's, it kind of all comes back to, to wanting to make things that are functional in the world. So I, I started making um, paper products and selling them on the side while I was a student. I was one of the first Etsy shops and um, I had my own thriving website prior to that though, too. I actually was invited to join Etsy because of that. I used to do a lot of craft shows uh, really up until the pandemic happened too. I, I still, I still do craft shows um, where I'll sort of present my whole stationery and gifts collection. 
And um, I often have worked on projects. I've often been hired as an illustrator, both in a commercial realm, editorial realm for picture books and, and publishing in general, because of what people saw that I made on my own. So I think there, the really direct path there has often been from the eye of an art director who saw the potential for something to, to be something else. Um, and then the books that I've written myself have really been based on things like characters that I enjoyed drawing that I could see coming back for uh, a little bit more. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think that there's everything that I create for my website or my products that I make on my own is sort of core to who I am. And then it, once it's out there in the world, it connects with other people or, you know, may not, <laughs> but you know, may connect with someone and then come back to turn into a different type of project and sort of gets um, built on. Yeah. From, from point. So, <laughs> for sure. And I really love to the process of printing and making things. So I think that's also a huge part of why I make products is because I enjoy a printing process or I enjoy setting things up. Like my picture books that I authored and illustrated stack the cats and balance the birds both use unusual printing processes. They're both um, Pantone color separated. They're not CMYK printed. It's like a very printmakery setup to that artwork. And that's because I've explored that so much on my own already. So I could bring that into my picture book process. We've been talking with Susie Garamani. There's plenty more coming up after the break, but I want to take this moment to request that you check out her John Muir books because they're really exquisite and haven't gotten all the shine they deserve. And please check out her website, hello.boygirlparty.com and her Etsy store of the same name, Boy Girl Party, for all your growth journals, nature-themed stationery, and other immaculately designed, handcrafted goods. Okay, let's get back into it. Part two begins now. Totally. Uh, that makes so much more sense. That printmaking process is such a magical thing, right? Like doing like letter presses or screen printing, like you have this very simple machine and all of a sudden you have this beautiful product that you can hold in your hand. You're like, whoa, where did this come from? Right? Like there's that little bit of media in between you and the thing that comes out. But yeah, like, the artwork can like kind of have a different feeling completely depending on how it's created, both how it's printed as well as the materials you use to create it. It, it ends up having sort of like this soul that you can't really pin down, um, but people feel and they sense when they see it. So I think I'm just interested in doing that in general um, with the products that I make, but, but with the picture books too, each one has really had a very different process uh, for creating the artwork or for printing it or, or both that sort of adds that layer of maybe someone doesn't know exactly why, but they're feeling something when they see it. And hopefully it's because of those choices that were made. This is just a very weedy question, but to do that kind of Pantone printing, like was, were your publishers, was that a, a big ask or was that something that was that difficult to pull off within the tr traditional publishing? I, I definitely had to convince my publisher the basis of when I created Stack the Cats was really off of some uh, baby clothing that I had designed and that was screen printed. So those were color separated. That was it, it has sort of like a really graphic energy to it, like a really um 
poppy graphic bright presentation because of the way that the baby clothing was printed. So I was thinking that that would really work if I could translate it to a picture book format and kind of maintain that like fun, high energy feeling through like flat colors and bright colors and uh, strong lines. But my publisher was really interested in my painted work, which tends to be quieter and softer and very muted in its palette. So um, I have a lot of different ways of working, but that's specifically what they were interested in. So what I ended up doing to kind of convince them was I painted a sample spread to the best of my possible ability, like exactly what they wanted from me. And then I mocked up what the Pantone separated artwork could look like and really just demonstrated that I think that this is what I really want it to look like though. And um, it was a huge ask. Uh, when the book has sold to translation, the translations don't always want to do that printing process, which is kind of, um, it's it's so much sadder looking when it's not printed the way that it was intended to be. But yeah, they were, thankfully my publisher, Abrams Appleseed really worked with me on using the unusual printing process and made it possible, but it was a big ask. Yeah. I'd love to talk about uh, a lot of like the paintings you do because you have such a sensitivity for the nuances of nature and in your in the in so many of your wonderful books, especially Little Mirror Song, which I think is just a beautiful book, um, and the, the books also that uh, you've done with Jennifer Ward. And like, could you just tell me a little bit about the the, the painting work that you do um, in a lot of your nature based books? Well, I appreciate what you said. Um, thank you. Uh, I I find, I would say the other time that I feel that total flow and just the quieting of my mind is when I'm in nature. So I, I really, especially as a kid, I grew up um, near forest and I really... I really crave it. So um, I try to go camping every month. Um, I spend a lot of time just being outside at least once a week. I, I like to go looking for frogs around this lake. There, there's just, there's a lot of um, childlike wonder that I feel when I'm in nature. So I think it's easy for me to tap into both in my art making, which sort of feels like a childlike process too, um, or a wondrous process, as well as in the picture books that I'm making. So I paint uh, traditionally using brushes and gouache. I have a particular interest in mixing color. Um, so I feel that that's a really big part of, of my work as well is, is trying to find how color can help tell a story and uh, help sort of complete the feeling that you have when you look at an illustration or look at a page in a book. Um, for What Will Hatch and What Will Grow by Jennifer Ward, those were both published by Bloomsbury. They're both nonfiction nature books that are a bit of a guessing game for kids. Um, and they, the first one's about animals that hatch from eggs, of the variety of animals, not just birds, that hatch from eggs. And then What Will Grow is about seeds and the different types of plants that they'll grow into. But in both as an illustrator, I try to tell a story that's not in the text. So um, what will grow is kind of about the environment that these animals exist in. And then what will hatch, uh, I'm, I'm mixing those up. What will hatch is about the environment that the animals grow, you know, uh, exist in. And then what will grow is really about the animals that are dependent on those plants. Even though it's not in the text, that's sort of, um, and also uh, it's a seasonal story as well. So it goes through the whole year. Both of those books were painted on wood panels because uh, I really wanted that wood grain texture to kind of come through and add that natural 
soul, you know, mm. to the illustrations. And uh, my publisher printed on a beautiful recycled uh, matte paper too. So it really feels like, um, I, 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 it bothers me when there's gloss in a book because I think sometimes that glare can sort of separate the reader from the experience. So I, I, it feels very immersive to me that they get to be um, these large matte images and then what will what will hatch there's little holes that people peek through so there's this real tactile element and then what will grow there's panels that open so there's again a really tactile moment where people are interacting with what they're looking at it feels parallel to an experience of being in nature to me with Little Mirror Song that's like a dream project I made um, two books for Yosemite National Park for Yosemite Conservancy, uh, using the words of John Muir that they had selected. And the art director and, and editor came to me and sort of envisioned that there would be this toddler with a beard that sort of resembled John Muir in some way out exploring nature. And here's a passage that's very abstract, just about the appreciation and wonder of for nature in general. And for both of those books, I really got to channel my personal experiences in the illustration. So um, with Little Muir's song, he's going on a hike that's of increasing elevation. So the plants and landscape and colors are changing as, as he sort of like goes deeper into the wilderness and then looks back at the whole scene. Um, so it's a real, there's a real progression and color story to how he's experiencing nature as he goes higher and higher in elevation. And then Little Mirror's Night has this, I've had this incredible experience going to Yosemite myself where you just look up at the night sky and it's very alive. Like there are bats flying and there's stars that extend beyond what you ever thought possible. So I was thinking, even though the text is kind of quiet and it's talking about the, um, infinity <laughs> of the mm. night sky. Um, I thought it was a really great opportunity to also show the liveliness. So I got to draw from my personal experiences, hiking and camping and being in nature when I made these books. I wanted to go back. I, you were talking about, I have kind of two questions. You were talking about that you painted on these tiny, the wood panels and I, and I've seen them and I think they're incredibly small, right? Or, or am I, am I just being, misseeing something? Like they're very tiny, like very small yeah. panels, right? Well, the 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 paintings I created for what will hatch and what will grow are big. Uh, okay, those are, those are big. Okay, got it. Those got are it. those are big because they're to scale uh, with the book. There was a slight enlargement that happened um, to enhance the wood grain look, but those panels I think were fourteen inches wide, so hmm. um, still still pretty big. Um, but the paintings I make myself, like here's one that I made yesterday, um, is uh, those those tend to be really really tiny, and I really love that because I can start and finish one in a day. I think that's important to me, you know, in a couple days or something like that. Um, that feels really important to me to have momentum to some of the things that I create because picture books are such a long process that sometimes I feel like I am just um, stuck, sometimes just waiting for a response to something uh, for weeks or months even. And uh, I just like to have that sense of progress in my own work. So I, mm. paint, I tend to paint very small so I can kind of move on to the next one and still have that momentum. And then also it's really cool when they come together. Like if I do an art show and there's a hundred tiny paintings, that to me is much more exciting than three large paintings. But Yeah, I, I feel that. I, I talked with uh, Brian Selznick earlier this season and he also like to get the spontaneity, he said. He also, he loves to work like these like inch, inch large pictures. 
And I don't, I didn't really understand that when I was talking to him, but I'm starting to understand it more now talking to you just to kind of, cause when I see like very small, I think, oh, that's so, so fine and delicate and how precise, but actually there's kind of a freedom there and that like, whoa, there's a ton of progress being made and I can actually see a bigger shape coming into something. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I love details anyway, so it doesn't feel like it's, um, it doesn't feel more intense than the work that I'm doing for picture books. It feels less intense. Like you're saying, it feels, it feels more like, um, there's more spontaneity in it. Cause also uh, there's so many times when I'm working on a small painting where if it's not quite going the way I wanted to, I kind of like paint over, like kind of ruin it, you know, and there's no risk. I mean, there's not like a sketch I'm trying to follow so closely that I have to, I usually do a sketch, but then I paint right over the sketch. I'll sketch right onto the wood and paint right over it as opposed to in picture books where the sketches are refined and refined and refined to a point where I really have to stay. It's a map. And I really have to stay very true to that because there's typography to consider or, you know, not a lot can change once the sketch is um, determined. So in, in the painting process, I kind of try to push it in the opposite direction. And there's mm. times where I can get really perfectionist about it or really, um, fussy about what I'm working on if it's not coming out the way I want it to uh, or the way that I start to envision as I'm working on it that's um, part of it is the more that you work the clearer of a sense of you have of what you want it to look like in the end um, which tends to be to me where the stress comes in with mm. marketing. like the more focused I am on what I want it to be uh, and the the further I am from that, then, then the, that gap becomes stressful. But if you don't have a clear sense of what you want it to be and you just start working, that's a really low stakes way to be about your artwork. And that's how I try to be with my personal work. Right. That aiming it, aiming it can be deadly, right? Try to aim for something or telegraph where it's going to go. Oh, God. Well, you right. want to have that control where you can do that. I mean, I have to do that in my professional work. I have to have a real clear sense of what I'm going to be able to do and what the client expects or the collaborator expects. Um, you know, that's that's an important skill, but I think it can be constrictive. So um, I think it's, it's one of the reasons I really like ceramics also is there's this <laughs> real unpredictable aspect to it, uh, this real disastrous aspect to it that keeps me kind of um, open-minded about what's possible. And sometimes those risks or mistakes or, um, you know, just any of those things can help advance my skills. So um, I try to, I, I have those opportunities to advance my skills when I allow myself to take those risks rather than trying to so tightly control the outcome. Yeah. I wanted to go back for a second because you said something really interesting about the matte paper and the recycled paper um, and not in trying to get that, that glossy glare off the images, which you felt really wouldn't work for the books. Are you involved um, because you have so much background in creating your own like paper goods um, for your children's books? Are you involved in that, in, in that kind of fine green detail of like, Oh, this would really go well on this paper or like, let's think about this. I'd love to hear what you think about like paper and in, in your own books. Yeah, I, I am. I try to be as involved as I can be with things like that. I mean, there's times where they really just uh, my collaborators may not want my involvement as much, <laughs> but um, I do bring a ton of experience just from making products and having a sense of my own um, aesthetic. Uh, 
that I, I love to bring when I can, like uh, in making Little Mirror's Night and Little Mirror's Song, I was the book designer, which was very exciting to get to do that, to have that. Um, I, I, that was, <laughs> that, that hasn't happened with any other books that I can think of um, where I got to be the designer as well. And that really kind of freed me to try different things. Um, I really loved that experience. I do love choosing paper stocks. I love having those options. Uh, I push for recycled when possible, even though it can mute the images. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, ink behaves differently on recycled paper than it does on, on other paper stocks. So uh, it kind of grays out the images a little bit. And I have that experience because I make recycled paper products myself. So the, the products that I make for my store, I always make sure have um, post-consumer waste recycled content. So um I mean, I, I have that familiarity and I love to use it when when I when there's room for that. Of course, every team is different, every publisher is different. Um, and some people have a stronger, a stronger opinion, you know, and I try not to step on anyone's toes. But if there's room for my opinion in the room, I really I do love to give it. So I'd love to hear about, okay, let's say you get a project or you get a contractor, or even uh I was fascinated to hear that uh, they picked you to illustrate uh, your mom's book without knowing the two of you were related. Is that factual? Of course it's factual. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, this is, a, this is actually, it's kind of an amazing story. So, um, so the incredible Laura Godwin at Godwin Books acquired my mom's manuscript. Um, my mom is an accomplished novelist who I have been what's the best word for this harassing for years to write a picture book. I would say harassment is, is where we were at. Um, I had advocated for her to come to SCBWI conferences with me for years, just because I thought it would be interesting for her. I thought it would be inspirational for her. I think she has an incredible ability to connect with children. So, um, I mean, she has this like fairy energy kind of, so like, Mm -hmm. I, I really, um, I really was advocating for her to be a picture book writer for years and years and years. Um, And then she one day wrote a manuscript. Um, It was pitched uh, independently of my illustrations. And I was kind of heartbroken because I really (laughs) wanted to work with her on a picture book. I wanted to work with her on this picture book. It really mirrors my relationship with my mom. So I really wanted to work on this. They didn't even mention my name. (laughs) So they did not um, in any way uh, include me in the pitch or anything. Um, Although I really, I I mean, I, I was, I really, really wanted to work on that book. Uh, and then one day, the editor reached out to my mom's agent, uh, who is now also my agent, who is my sister, and said, um, there's an illustrator I'm familiar with. She made this book, What Will Grow. I'm pretty sure she's Persian. Are you familiar with her work? And it was me. And because um, I think I think Laura thought that if they knew me, that it would have been mentioned at some point. Um, <laughs> so she put together this idea that um, here's another, per- you know, it's a cultural story. So here's a, a Persian illustrator who will, you know, has some of the same cultural background and could bring some authenticity to this. Are you familiar with her work? And <laughs> and uh, my mom and my sister um, 
you know, my, my sister called me crying with joy. Um, just, this was kind of a dream come true, but I think they, it was, it's just incredibly serendipitous and, um, just unimaginable that, uh, (laughs) that just that it happened this way. Um, yeah, it's, it's absolutely incredible. (laughs) We we laugh about it with Laura every time we talk. (laughs) Well, anyways, you get such tunnel vision that you're like, we have the same last, anyways. I appreciate that she didn't make the assumption that we would know each other though. I mean, I, I really appreciate that, that there was that, um, you know, both the open-mindedness not to assume that people with the same name would, you know, same last name would be related. Um, and I mean, I really think that that speaks to her integrity a bit, that she, she didn't make that assumption. She didn't even ask. Um, it was, I, I really like that she put those images together and what she specifically advocated for, uh, for having me as the illustrator with the Persian background is that my work was a little bit more broad beyond the culture. Cause I think originally, um, I think with a different editor, this might have taken on a really traditional look. And um, with me, they're kind of giving me the room to bring imagination into it and and not such a traditional look, maybe more of a commercial look. Um, it's, a, it's a dream project in every possible way, honestly. And uh, Laura is one of the best parts of it, for sure. Like she, she has such vision and the whole team there, um, is just it is bringing so much to this book process it's really awesome and i think part of the way that they uh, brought me in as the illustrator is one of, is it, that's that's one of the best parts of it i think for me well tell me about how you're okay i was bringing this up because i found that such a fascinating story but i also wanted to kind of hear about how you find your way in to an illustration project like what it like okay you obviously you knew this one a bit but what is it that you have to do to have it catch fire for you so mm. that you're going to push it and take it, not just uh, dash it off, but take it to that place where like, oh, whoa, this is, this is cool. Like I'm going to spend six months on this a year, whatever it is. Like I'm going <laughs> to get in three years, two to three, three years. years. Excuse me. Excuse yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, well, you have to find that. I think there has to be that sense that you're connecting with the manuscript immediately. And for me, there has to be that feeling that there's going to be more there than just what's written. Um, I start to think about what's the what's the visual story I can tell. Um, I think that's part of it is is what would be what is a visual aspect that I can add to this that's not in the text uh, that feels like something I can explore. So I may not be specifically going in with that question, but that's ultimately the question I'm answering when I'm looking at a manuscript and uh, ultimately when I'm doing research around it. Because every book that I create, uh, you know, something as silly as Stack the Cats to something that's maybe a little bit more um, traditional, like what will grow, uh, really is rooted in a lot of research, a lot of time spent just thinking about the possibilities or researching the possibilities, researching um, the the factual elements of the books too like just mm. um, doing visual research and some, sometimes scientific research even mm. like on the little mirror books i consulted with the naturalist for yosemite conservancy a lot uh to the point where i think he grew to really hate me but you know i had a lot of questions because i felt like there was information i wanted to include that wasn't in the book um that that a reader could experience and that would really help me create a map for the story, uh, create 
like where I was going to go with the illustrations. Like it's nowhere in the book in Little Mere Song, there's nothing about elevations, but I started to explore, okay, what are the plants and animals and colors of these different elevations? And how can I use that to kind of match with different parts of the text and um, create this progression through the day uh, that doesn't, you know, that isn't part of the text overtly. But that became the story I was obsessed with telling. Yeah. <laughs> Is there like a a breaking point where you're like, okay, I've got the knowledge to start like diving into like making, uh, painting it or whatever it is. I know for me, like if I have to write something, I'm like, I don't know it. I don't know it. I don't know it. Like there's, and then something, if suddenly I'm like, okay, I got like something. I have a, a detail or something where I feel like I know it now and I can feel good, like starting to write it. Is there something analogous that happens with illustration in that sense that you're like, especially for like image, image research or, or just research of like how these, like a system, like a ecosystem interacts or, or functions. Are you working side by, this is such a long question, but are you also kind of working side by side, like with materials experimentation, because that's such a big thing for you while you're kind of learning about the subject, are you also kind of multitasking you're like oh here's the materials I'm going to use the techniques I might try um I just love to hear about how you start to synthesize how it's how you're going to make it make this yeah. work uh, I, I understand what you're asking yeah yeah um I would say that the the process of beginning, the process of working on every book is different, but yeah. it begins in the same place for me before, you know, when I'm, I always sketch thumbnails at the start of the book, uh, but before I feel the confidence to do thumbnails. So even when I'm writing my own book, I'll usually create the thumbnails first. Um, the, the process usually begins with, I'll have a sketchbook that I'll dedicate. I did this even before I did uh, children's publishing when I did you know, different uh, books for adults as well, or designing my stationary products. I'll have a dedicated book just for doing re visual research or trying out ideas or stylizations. And I kind of try to find the language of what the, what the images are going to kind of look like. Mm -hmm. Like, um, what will grow definitely has a little bit more, uh, natural detail that reflects the, the real world where Stack the Gats is really, really heavily stylized or she wanted to be haunted. Another picture book that I illustrated written by Marcus Ewart is really, really heavily stylized. So I kind of find the language of what, you know, specific things are going to look like in the book, specific plants, for example, like, um, what, that is going to look like. I'll kind of sketch out a lot of different iterations or the book that I'm working on with my mom right now. Um, I really worked on the, the character designs uh, pretty heavily before I started doing any of the thumbnailing. So um, really kind of try to build this almost like visual sketch library in a, mm. in a sketchbook um, of like, and it, and it helps me because I can go back to it as I'm working and kind of remember the foundation of my ideas visually. So that's kind of where everything starts and is just with these sketchbooks and building this sort of like um, a catalog of how things are going to look in the book. And then I'll work on materials um, later on in the process. Like I'll, I'll generally create this, this sketchbook uh, of research where I'm kind of just taking down anything that feels interesting, anything that feels possible in the book. And then I sort of narrow down from there. We'll work on the thumbnails of the book. Um, 
which I tend to do sequentially, regardless of the project. I tend to start at the beginning and work my way through. I spend a lot of time on thumbnailing. I think some people, I admire people who can do this quickly. It's a very slow process for me. I, I think I'm overly detailed sometimes in the thumbnails too, but I'll work on them and I'll, I'll go back and change things as they feel off or, you know, if, if pages feel like they need different compositions, I'll kind of change things then. And then once I have like a clearer sense of how the story is overall looking, then I'll start exploring with exploring materials and I'll create sample images or sample um, renderings. Um, like was she wanted to be haunted? I, I was working on character illustrations, just some sort of like sample possible color combinations. And um, I was using a watercolor block and the, the cover of it was black. Uh, like the under the main cover, there's like a black end paper kind of to the color block. And I thought like, I'm just gonna tear this off and paint on the black to see if that adds something different. And that was a revelation. I thought that was that, okay, this is, I don't know if I'm being very clear, but basically I determined that all the illustrations needed to be painted on black once I had done that experimental process because it added this like underlying texture and tone that sort of matched the spooky themes of the book. So um, it was, it was uh, an experiment at that stage, but I had already designed the characters, thumbnailed out the book by the time that I was doing that experiment. Um, and then pretty much, especially because it's a new technique that I'm trying, I'll have to show it to the, to my collaborator and just make sure that they're in agreement, that that's kind of like what I was saying about Stack the Cats, where I created right. a painted rendering and then a color separated rendering, just be like, this is what I'm thinking. Does that work for you? Because it's always a collaboration. Your process sounds so stimulating, especially this, this kind of early messy phases. I wonder if it, it's ever kind of a letdown to be like, all right, time for finished work. Like, because you, you, you get to try out so many different things and it's so exciting to learn new things about yourself. And are you ever like, kind of like, how, how do you kind of maintain that excitement into the finished work phase of it? The finished work phase of it is my favorite part. Honestly. Oh, it is. Oh, it is. Wow. Yeah. Cause I feel like I have a, a confident sense of what I'm going to create and I get to just paint or create like that's, that's my most joyful part of the process. The most challenging part of the process for me is uh, our revisions. Um, those are the parts that sort of start to feel um, like the perfectionist in me comes up. There's a lot of, you know, very useful criticism and necessary criticism, but it's also hard. You know, it's also, it takes a toll also sometimes to have to sort of face all the work that you've done and um, realize what isn't working in, you know, sometimes only someone else's eyes or, you know, what isn't working and needs to be redone. And that can feel like labor. So, um, so no, for me, the, the creating the finished artwork is pretty joyful and it sort of feels like it's all coming together. Like it's like hearing the symphony perform the, you know, it's, it's really, um, it's satisfying. Honestly, I find it very satisfying. It can be physically difficult. Um, cause sometimes, you know, the deadlines are really, it's like you have this massive amount of work due and in such a long time frame that you it's it can feel daunting to work on it in that regard then you know especially if I'm like eight paintings in um, a book that needs 40 paintings it's it feels like yeah I've barely made a dent you know eight paintings in but um I I love making the final artwork I think for me that's where I feel um 
it was like all the research and all the foundation and experimentation really just flows really well into the final artwork because then I've made decisions. So yeah, I really, I, I like that aspect of it. Oh. Okay, I just it just seems so fun to me that I'd be like, who who would ever want to stop, you know? But like, <laughs> I love that you can, you know, that you bringing it together is like the joyful culmination of it. Do you feel like there's anything? I know a lot of, when I, I've talked to a lot of artists and creators, and sometimes they'll say like, "Gosh, I haven't learned anything um, after all this time." Like it's still like. <laughs> I still feel like an absolute beginner every time I sit down. Do you feel, is there any kind of stuff that you have in your back pocket from all your experience, either from working on books or even just from all the kind of like commercial products and commercial illustrate? Is there anything that you've got? You're just like, that you can, that, that will reliably help you like every time you're like, Oh, I've got something here. It's not just all vapor. It's consistently challenging and it, and it is, I feel like I may, I may be, um, on a different day, I may not sound as optimistic, <laughs> you know, uh, some days are a lot harder than other days. It's definitely, it's a challenging career. So, um, so I want to think about this for a moment. Um, I think it, Maybe the best answer to that question is really just that I embrace that it's always different. Uh, and and I think the variety of experiences that I've had, it, both across publishing, every book being different, even books in the same series being different, um, every aspect of my work is, is kind of uh, introduces me to new challenges and new learning opportunities and new disappointments and new all kinds of things new connections um positive and negative both and I think I've kind of learned to embrace that mm. I think um that attitude helps me uh to kind of know that there's going to be unexpected things uh that I experience and that sometimes they help me grow and sometimes they may break my heart a little bit but um but that that's all kind of part of the life of an artist. I could, that's, that's beautiful. That, that's a wonderful, yeah, it's all going to be okay. Right. Yeah. I think, I think there has to be this amount of trust that you put into your, you know, if you're putting your honest self out there and your creativity out there with um, the least self-consciousness possible, that it's going to be received with the same earnestness you made it with um, somewhere along the way. And it may not be in the, in, you know, it's, I, I don't know. I feel like words are failing me a little bit because this feels like such a big question to think about, you know, what do you really learn from trying all these different things or all the experiences that you have? And I think it is sort of like, you have to just kind of trust that um, if you dedicate yourself fully to each individual part of what you're working on that it works out to a life that that makes sense and it works out to a body of work that makes sense and it works out to one thing connecting to the next eventually um even if it may not feel that way in the moment that's all the time we have today on conversations on behalf of all of us at scbwi i'd like to thank Susie for making the time to talk with us if you'd like what you've heard please subscribe to our totally free show, new episodes every week. And please head over to scbwi.org 
you'd like to learn more about the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. This episode was produced by Avery Silverberg and edited by Samantha Thomas. Thanks for listening. Drop by next week.